Appamata and its programs are supported by your generosity and your generosity and support makes such a difference. You can find a link for contributions on the website at appamata.org. Thank you. Good morning. Today is, uh, I'll be um, talking about part two of Communities of Practice. And first I have a couple of brief announcements. This afternoon, as most of you know, Flint and I, together with Saunders and Madison and the UK, will be entrusting two new Dharma teachers, Josh Gifford and Suzanne Kilkas. This is a momentous occasion that further weaves the Apamata Sanghas together and recognizes the tremendous dedication and commitment of two fine teachers. And we're delighted by this opportunity for all of our Sangha members to join us. So we hope you'll be able to join us at one o'clock through the Zoom link that's on the calendar. Next weekend, Lori will lead a one day plus intensive um, beginning Friday evening and continuing through Saturday. And then Joel will be giving the Dharma talk on Sunday. So last week I began speaking about the Buddha's core teachings from the perspective of community and how does a community understand, embrace, and embody those teachings as a Sangha. So this week we continue with the teachings of the Eightfold Path and Right Livelihood and Right Effort. So every spiritual community must find a way to support itself. In doing so, it must find a middle way between two ditches. The first ditch is idealizing poverty and lack as somehow spiritual. Although the Buddha and his followers embraced the freedom and simplicity of the homeless life, the Sangha was well supported by wealthy donors who provided land and built monasteries, as well as being fed every day by householders, even from the poorest neighborhoods on their morning begging rounds. In return, they were instructed and counseled by the teachings of the Buddha and his disciples. The Buddha did not endorse poverty as a spiritual ideal and advised wealthy followers not to give up their resources, but to make wise use of them, supporting others and the Dharma. Some spiritual communities find themselves, limit themselves unnecessarily because members harbor the notion that the spiritual realm is somehow beyond base concerns with the material world. But that has never been the case. Disciples must be fed. The Sangha needs a home. Somehow the toilet paper, candles, and incense need to be purchased. I met a Zen teacher at a conference who confided to me that she was worried about losing her house because her taxes had come up. She was afraid for her Sangha, which had been meeting in her home for 30 years, and she told me she'd been planning to leave the house to the Sangha rather than to her own daughter when she died. Why don't you increase the rent paid by the Sangha to cover the tax increase, I asked. Oh, she told me, shocked. The Sangha doesn't pay rent. I knew her intentions were good. She wanted to make this offering out of generosity and care, but I saw what that meant. You're infantilizing them. This is unhealthy for the Sangha, I blurted out. It's so important for a Sangha to grow into a mature understanding of what it takes to support itself and a willingness to take responsibility for it. This provides an opportunity for members to practice the heart-opening paramita of generosity and to feel they belong and have a meaningful contribution to make in support of the whole, whether in time, effort, or financial support. 
This deepens the bonds of mutual trust and care. Sanghas evolve, like humans, from helpless dependency and in infancy through stages of growing independence to a mature responsibility for not only supporting themselves, but providing for others through, for example, family programs, prison dharma, hospice work, literacy teaching, helping the homeless. Resources are needed not only for operating expenses, but also to support future growth and sustainability and our mission in the world. Sanghas must not fall into the ditch of embracing poverty as either a spiritual ideal or an inescapable reality. The second ditch is the ditch of excess. This is generally not a ditch Zen communities are prone to. It is more the province of gurus and televangelists. The aversion to it often leads Sanghas to fall into the opposite ditch. But when a spiritual community is fortunate in its donors or begins to experience the comfort and ease of abundance, it is easy to grow complacent and lose spiritual vigor and, and clarity. So one Sangha was supported by two wealthy donors who provided a huge house and other property and all of the Sangha's operating expenses. As a result, Sangha members became dependent on these resources and did not develop a sense of financial awareness or responsibility for the Sangha. As the donors grew older, one moved away and the other gradually provided less support. The Sangha struggled then to support itself and the property because of its members had not learned to take responsibility for the community. Large donors are a blessing in ensuring the sustainability of the Sangha and providing for needed expansion and development. But their support should not displace the fundamental responsibility every Sangha member shares for the welfare of the whole Sangha. And great care must be taken to ensure that donors do not use their resources as a way to control the teachers or the Sangha. Teachers in particular should be mindful and guard against favoritism with donors or judgments or expectations about Sangha members based on contributions. So what are some methods used by spiritual communities for their support, their livelihood? First, as we find ourselves in a capitalist ecosystem, one approach is to align with that model, offering goods or services for a price. Certainly, this is a familiar model for most of our Sangha members. That may mean producing or trading in goods, meditation cushions, statues, incense, altar supplies, home decor, and even jewelry and art. The exchange model is well understood even by those new to or even outside of the community. So is the concept of pay to play that underlies membership in spiritual communities through pledges or levels of monthly contributions, intensives, classes, workshops, talks, and even practice discussions with a teacher generally have costs either fixed or suggested under such an approach. Two, fundraising campaigns are another way sanghas, especially larger ones, raise money for support or for special needs such as a larger space, construction, a new heating system, and so on. This is a common strategy for nonprofits. Major contributions from large-scale donors are sometimes the main funding model for some sanghas, as noted above. And many sanghas combine both of these approaches in their livelihood. There are many varieties of fundraising campaigns, from planned giving to capital campaigns to zenathons, such as San Francisco Zen Center hosts. 
Maintaining large facilities like San Francisco's Zen Center requires a great deal of operating, program, and maintenance capital, so they have a variety of approaches to support. Organizations also raise funds through grant applications for foundations and civic organizations, but these are generally not uh, that helpful for ongoing operating expenses. They generally are attached to particular programs or initiatives. The third model is the generosity model. In this approach, space, time, and teachings are freely offered from a sense of abundance, not acquisition. As our practice is about liberation, our community is about providing opportunities for practice, spiritual friendship, and wise guidance on the spiritual path. In this model, there are no limits or barriers for participation through registration fees or costs for any offering. No special category called member to create division in the Sangha. As we aspire to a Sangha as diverse as the larger community, access to the Dharma is freely offered and people's participation is by voluntary affiliation. This is not a more refined exchange model with subtle expectations for compensation or suggested donations. It is not a pay it forward model, which is just another version of exchange, even if a slightly more altruistic one. A mature Sangha based on the generosity model is supported by the freely offered generosity of its participants and well-wishers, which is, in turn, one of the most life-affirming, heart-expanding teachings of the Buddha. In fact, the Buddha scolded his disciples because on their begging rounds, they avoided the poorest neighborhoods out of compassion. In this way, the Buddha said, they were not giving those most in need the opportunity to practice generosity. In a capitalist society, can such a radical model work? Can a Sangha survive and thrive solely on the uncoerced generosity of its participants? Won't people just take advantage, freeloading in their own self-interest? This generosity model has been the approach of Vipassana Buddhist centers for many years. They vary in how they explain it. It is such an unfamiliar way of thinking for Americans that it requires some teaching of its own. My own sister became quite angry and distressed that leaders of a Vipassana retreat she attended wouldn't say what was expected or average or usual or normal contribution. And she struggled to decide what it was worth. This was complicated by the fact that it was offered online so there were not even the typical costs for lodging or food that might have given a clue. This is an important struggle that requires us to relinquish our cultural and personal conditioning that confuses us so that we think of everything in economic terms. Our lives have become a market where every experience is weighed and expected to have an exchange value, whether the medium is money, time, power, goods, love, friendship, effort. Is this whatever, relationship, job, education, trip, spiritual practice, worth my time, worth my money. The Sangha is not a marketplace, and the Buddha's teachings, especially in a hyper-capitalistic society, may be freely offered. It is not only what the Buddha himself practiced and taught. It is a specific antidote and remedy for the painful conditions created by capitalism, greed, alienation, self-centeredness, exploitation, inequality, war, 
environmental degradation, consumerism, despair, species extinction, and death. It is not easy to adopt the generosity model, and it cannot be adopted by half measures or by some hybrid combination with other models. It is an all-or-nothing commitment. But it is surprisingly satisfying for the Sangha. For quite a few years, we have had registration fees for classes and intensives as a source of support to supplement contributions. It seemed like an approach to supporting the Sangha that was well understood, even by folks who were new. They pay for yoga classes. They pay for other kinds of uh, services. It's the common model in other Zen communities, so it was a natural model for us to adopt. We began the transition to the generosity model last year, and we have found that it has not diminished the support that the Sangha receives. In fact, when we first began discussing the possibility with the Sangha, we received two large contributions to support that initiative. More importantly, we removed a financial barrier to participation, and this in turn has naturally fostered greater diversity. Now we are established in it more rapidly than we expected because of the pandemic, and it is a profound blessing. Every spiritual community is different, of course. The path of right livelihood for a Sangha must take into consideration local conditions and the values of the community. But we must not make assumptions about support based on conditioned thinking or on the marketplace, the capacities of those we serve, or what churches or other faith traditions do. We are a medium for liberation. We don't need anything elaborate to share the Dharma with a world desperately in need of its wisdom and compassion. There are so many benefits of the generosity model, both obvious and unexpected, that we strongly recommend it. Even in the face of financial adversity, then, the whole Sangha can explore options and determine how best to address current conditions while creatively envisioning future possibilities. The issue of right livelihood for the Sangha is an ongoing inquiry for the whole community. It then becomes a way to reflect on the fundamental values of the community. This model is not based on conventional notions of scarcity. It comes instead from a sense of abundance and ease that is not dependent on a balance sheet or bank account. After all, the Buddha's teachings are an inexhaustible golden fountain of Dharma. The conversations with the Sangha around light, light, right livelihood for the community will also naturally invite Sangha members to explore their personal approach to right livelihood individually as a reflection of their own values and intentions. The sixth step on the Eightfold Path is right effort. So in the beginning, the spiritual community's efforts are directed toward establishing the Sangha, building relationships, core values, and principles, finding space to meet, and scheduling activity. This effort continues, but a Sangha is not just a club of people interested in Buddhism. A Sangha has work to do. Right effort from this ecological perspective means that a Sangha is collectively working, both internally and externally, to counter the forces of greed, hostility, and delusion, relieve suffering, and liberate beings. Right effort is wholehearted, without strain and striving or attachment to outcomes. That effort is ongoing in thought, 
as the Sangha reflects together wisely, speech as the Sangha discusses together, and action as the Sangha comes into being through shared activity. In all three ways, we exercise mindful, energetic care. In meetings, for example, we begin with a brief period of silence, a time to transition mindfully from other activities to the meeting and our shared purpose. One model we have found very helpful is called Conversation Cafe. It is a way of managing group discussion and decision making that ensures all voices are heard and fairly allocates meeting time. The way it works is by dividing the group into subgroups of six to eight participants. The topic of the discussion may be decided in advance, or it may be generated at the beginning of the meeting based on the concerns of participants. For example, at Potlucks, we will ask each participant to list three topics of particular concern to them. We then list all of these topics on a large piece of chart paper so everyone can see them and begin three rounds of voting. In the first round, participants can vote for as many topics as they like. In the second round, they have two votes, and in the final round, they have one vote, so they choose the topic of most interest to them. This generally results in a single topic choice that is well supported by everyone who's there. In any event, the topic decided is explained or defined until everyone is clear about it. The timing of Conversation Cafe can be adapted to the time available. Someone needs to act as the timekeeper. So here's a typical schedule. We begin with, and once the topic has been explained and defined, we begin with one minute of silence. Second step is one minute of speaking. In each subgroup, one person will speak at a time about the topic without interruption for one minute. You simply go around in turn, or if online, in alphabetical order. When it is your turn, the one minute space is protected, even if you remain silent during part or all of the time. You cannot pass your turn, but you may keep silent during it. The rest of the group listens to each person mindfully. Third step, one minute of silence after everyone has spoken. Fourth step, two minutes of speaking. The same process in which participants will each have two minutes to speak, now having heard each person in their group. Again, each person's time is protected. Step five, after, after everyone has spoken, there's another one minute of silence. Step six, open discussion. There's now a flexible amount of time for general discussion. We usually start with 15 minutes and then check to see if the groups need more time for completion. Step seven is one more minute of silence. And then there's a round in step eight, one minute of appreciation. Each person has one minute to share something someone else has said that they appreciate. Something thought-provoking, unexpected, inspiring, for example. Step nine, one minute of silence. Step 10, if a decision is to be made, a vote is taken. And then finally, either at this time or after the meeting, some time to debrief and give feedback about the process itself, how people felt it supported them. 
This process takes time. It takes about an hour in groups of six to eight, but it has so many benefits for the community that it is worth making this effort. First, it gives each person an equal opportunity to speak and to listen. It establishes fairness in discussion and corrects for unconscious bias or communication styles that are either uh, withholding or uh, kind of overbearing. It reduces power differentials and dissolves common power dynamics in communication. For example, interruption or people talking over one another. It invites fresh perspectives and ideas, oftentimes from people we haven't heard much from. It trains the community in mindful listening. It fosters deeper understanding, respect, and appreciation for each other. It cultivates healthy norms for discussion and decision-making in the Sangha. So even if you don't use this process for every meeting, just the fact that you're practicing and training in it as a Sangha helps all meetings move a little more smoothly. So right effort requires an ongoing mindful inquiry about how the Sangha collects and directs itself in the service of our shared intention to be a beneficial influence in the world. We have a responsibility to represent and enact the Dharma. When we are able to demonstrate the possibility for living with community in mutual care, trust, healthy relating, wisdom and compassion, we bring light into the world. It is not only Sangha members who benefit from our efforts, the whole world is illuminated by such a community. Right effort skillfully weaves the social fabric of a community that is resilient, alive, ethical, purposeful, and trustworthy. The heart of all collective effort in the Sangha is our vow to live and be lived for the benefit of all beings. Together, the moral force of such a collective commitment cannot be overstated. It is beyond comprehension, boundless throughout space and time, even when the Sangha itself is quite small. Whole universes unfurl themselves through our efforts in forging the spiritual community. Do not imagine for a moment that because the world is vast, troubled, and racked with greed, hostility, and ignorance, that our efforts are meager and futile. Through spiritual community, we feed a hunger most people are not even aware they are suffering from, and an existential longing for connection and care. We teach and foster new ways of relating, working together, and communicating. These efforts of a Sangha are continuously planting seeds of liberation. Without attachment to outcomes, we can be free to shape our collective efforts to address the circumstances of our unique time and place and the immediate causes and conditions creating suffering, not only in individuals, but through larger systems and ecosystems. As Sanghas, we must engage in collective right effort. We cannot be content just to sit together in stillness and silence as if visiting a spa. We have a presence, a voice, and a vow. Each morning, we avow our collective karma, take refuge together in Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha, and vow to embody together Buddha's way. Alone, the Bodhisattva vows to liberate all beings seem insurmountable. The only way to fully express them is together. Consider the ugly, tragic legacy of racism. 
with right view, we clearly see that it is not merely the result of some misguided racist individuals. We bear, all of us, the burden of collective karma, the suffering created by whole systems of oppression, schools, churches, work, legal systems, as well as the more subtle and sinister systems of privilege, power, bias, and exclusion. This collective karma, when fully comprehended, is shocking, and the burden of it crushes the whole society. How can it ever be resolved? It requires a collective effort. In order for a collective effort to be truly beneficial and liberating, it needs to come from collective wisdom and compassion and ethical principles. In other words, it depends on right intention. This is cultivated, shaped, and purified through our practice together as a community. Taking refuge together in Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha, we prepare together to express as a community our bodhisattva vow and to embody it through right effort together. We are taking the important steps to do this work through the Liberating Dharma program led by Circe, Sandra, Tasha, and Robin. Collective karma, not only racism, but the whole mass of collective karma, including climate catastrophe, economic inequality, misogyny, political extremism, and so on, cannot be addressed through the efforts of individuals, no matter how inspiring. Individuals can only call us to collective action. Obviously, this depends on right view, right intention, right speech, and right action. How are these qualities ever going to permeate our societies and enlighten them? It is just this way, through establishing sanghas as luminous examples of collective wisdom, compassion, and enlightened effort, that we plant the seeds of collective awakening. Our efforts through community become focused and powerful, like a laser that gathers scattered light waves into a single beam of light that can easily cut through steel. Those scattered individual photons are brought together and precisely focused through a jewel, just as we, in all the scattered flurry of our everyday lives, are brought together and focused through the three jewels of Buddha, the inspiration of Buddha, as well as our own awakened nature, Dharma, the teachings of the Buddha, as well as the teachings of life as it is, and Sangha, our spiritual community, as well as the communion of all living beings, realizing together the path of liberation. Surely this is worthy of our wholehearted collective effort. So in my next talk, in two weeks, I'll be continuing the exploration of the Buddha's teachings from the perspective of spiritual community. Meanwhile, please enjoy the offerings this week at Apamata. There are many of them. So <coughs> I think that's, uh, that's probably a lot. And uh, I think we might just gather in some breakout rooms. Let's see, we have 19 people, maybe uh, groups of five uh, for about 20 minutes. And here's what I'd like you to discuss, the questions of right livelihood and right effort for the Apamata Sangha. If anything stands out from the talk today, please share and discuss it. So our, our uh, host will um, set up some breakout rooms for us.
was a productive and interesting discussion, and um, we'll have service now. So, unless Andy, you have something you wanted to say? Okay. Okay. So we'll we'll have our uh, our regular service. <laughs>